Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. When I was two years old, when I was dedicated to the cause of Lucifer, I was at that point a seventh generation witch. I was laying there, practically, and I had her hold me as if I was me. I couldn't talk, I couldn't open my eyes, I, I believe my eyes were going back in my head. There was evidence of human sacrifice on this fight. One of my first questions I asked was, God, is there evidence? guys we are here on conspiracy normal and on the line we have someone that we had on before last year uh in december with someone that uh is become now somewhat of an expert on the whole topic of 9-11 and that is rebecca roth and i'm real happy to have her on rebecca welcome back to conspiracy normal well thanks for having me on Absolutely. Absolutely. We, we talked to you last year back in December, as I mentioned. Uh, we talked about your books, Methodical Illusion and Methodical Deception. And now you have a new book, uh, which is called Methodical Conclusion. And believe that this will be the last part of a trilogy that you have worked on about, uh, 
uh, about 9-11 and some of the revelations that you have uh, discovered about it. And we're here to kind of further that uh, discussion tonight. I want to read uh, a little bit about your background and about how you started with this. Uh, I said, Rebecca Roth can best be described as the accidental best-selling author. For more than 30 years, she flew with a major international carrier as a flight attendant and later as a purser flying weekly to Asia or Europe. Upon her retirement, she commenced to write about her many airline experiences, but in the process learned that some of the so-called 9-11 hijackers were still alive. This shifted her focus into deep research into the four fatal flights on that day. Using her airline experience and her uncommon ability to dig deeper into the facts, both apparent and hidden, her novel Methodical Illusion was born. This work exposed what happened to the airplanes that day and why the phone calls from those planes proved the government's story of 9-11 was false. So explosive were her discoveries as she appeared on countless radio shows, one of those I heard you on, which was the first one was Canary Cry Radio, culminating with a three-hour interview with George Norrie on Coast to Coast AM. That appearance alone propelled her book to the ninth best-selling book on Amazon for a time and encouraged her to follow up her discoveries by writing Methodical Deception. Of course, more information came pouring in and more research resulted in the third book of the series, Methodical Conclusion which we're going to talk about tonight, which blows the doors of the cover-ups by the perpetrators. Now she's involved full-time in research and writing, which has been likened to a German shepherd on the trail of criminals. You can look forward to more of her explosive discoveries by allowing her on Facebook, following her on Facebook and YouTube, and learning the truth about what really occurred that dark Tuesday in September. Now that is... Oddly enough, we are uh, we are approaching the 15-year anniversary, and uh, honestly, I-, I cannot believe that it has been that long. Yeah, it's it's absolutely mind blowing to think about it, and um, it, you know, as I researched, I I kept thinking, how come nobody saw this? How come nobody else found this? How, how come, you know, for it was almost like I had eyes that could see and no one else could see it. And when we, as we go on, and we're going to talk about, I found some FOIA data that somebody else had requested online on a blog in the references in a blog. And when I clicked that on, it actually gave me the missing piece of the book, Methodical Conclusion. And that guy, 9-11 researcher, done lots of blogs and for years been onto this, probably six to eight years or more, and didn't know what he had. He didn't know what he was looking at. So it's amazing to me. I, when I look and I think, well, hmm, I'll just keep looking and seeing because my eyes, for some reason, really were opened to seeing and putting this piece of the puzzle together. I've always, even as a kid, been really good at puzzles. <laughs> That's one reason I guess I have puzzle pieces on right. my covers. But it is a puzzle. 9-11 was a huge, I mean, it's a huge event. There was so much going on that, you know, when you watched it on TV, I did. I had just gotten home from a trip, so I was watching it unfold. We saw the impossible happen in front of our eyes on television. But since the news was telling us, we kind of collectively believed it. That in conjunction with being traumatized that we were under attack and we were at war or something. We were so confused. We were so easily as a nation brainwashed that we stopped using our logic. And when I started looking at 9-11, I first found the hijackers were still alive. And I, I started to really research it. I really got rabbit into it. I mean, I have to admit, I mean, my husband was probably the most patient man in the entire <laughs> so I was 
that's like 20 hours a day researching this. I was like the lunatic guy on Close Encounters. I, I had charts and, and little plain pins and strings. And I was, you know, taking, uh, as I got information, what the FAA was saying the planes were doing, what the people on the phones were doing, and looking really, really closely. And I just, in the back of my mind, kept saying, I just can't believe people didn't figure this out. It was pretty simple. Well, let me ask you this. I mean, we're, you know, we're, I think that's the big thing that everybody always talks about, and especially since we're getting to the anniversary date. You know, uh, everybody says, well, where were you that day? It's like the Kennedy assassination or Pearl Harbor for an earlier generation. You know, people remember where they were when they heard the news and they remember what they were doing. And uh, what were you doing on that day? And do you uh, d- did you have some some personal interaction with some of the people that lost their lives? Uh, I have had since the books came out, but not that day. Uh, I just gotten in from a trip. I was I'd been in Europe, and I gotten home probably about midnight, about you know maybe six seven hours before this whole event started unfolding. Yeah. My phone rang, and someone said, "Turn on the television," and hung up. And I thought when I turned it on, just in time to see what we were told was United 175 going into the South Tower like a hot knife through butter. I thought the person who phoned me was playing a trick on me and that it was some rendition of the War of the Worlds or something. Because as an airline professional, we study crashes as part of our yearly training. And I knew that an aluminum aircraft could not fly through a skyscraper like we saw. And at the end, it just left little dust balls, remember? You can turn it down to slow motion and see the whole tail and the wings and everything just go and then poof into little puff balls and that's yeah. not what happened it would have exploded on the outside of the building but i, I mean no i was pretty jet lagged out um uh, and then i just watched everything and i remember looking and listening and thinking well what do you mean they called in on their cell phone because the media was saying that you know these passengers were calling in from their cell and at in 2001 i'm here to tell you because i tried it because i commuted coast to coast uh, from the east to the west back and forth uh, to get to my base often because I flew out of five different bases so uh, and I usually commuted so I tried my phone I you know I tried texting I tried turning it on tried to get bars of reception there was none uh, once you got above 15 to 1800 feet but not at 39,000 feet like flight 93 was and almost everyone that came through uh, on phone calls supposedly used a cell phone when I started to look at this and I just kept uh, a little like a running list of things that were impossible and as from an airline perspective you know the flight crews didn't follow protocol they didn't use the code words they didn't do what we should have done they didn't say the information they should have the most important information on that whole day from all the flight attendants that called in and there was like four of them five of them uh, that called to somehow to their company or to someone family or somebody uh, first off, they should have called one number to their company, their security number, and they all called weird things like their spouse or their parents or the reservations or, or something. And then they didn't say the most important thing, which was, how did someone get in the cockpit? And they never said it because no one was in it. <laughs> That's why they didn't say it. So when I started to figure out that, that and then, I, you know, as I got uh, collecting government data, I had to wade through a lot of silly blogs I mean, just silliness. Uh, flight attendants uh, weren't really there. They didn't show up for work. They were kidnapped, and they used voice morphing. Uh-huh. 
I mean, there's just nonsensical uh, conspiracy nut stuff that as an airline person, uh, you can, you, you just know that it's nonsense. And so I started to see, as I started researching, lots of people had lots of nonsense and silly, silly theories that didn't make sense. So I was home. I watched it all unfold. I did what I think a lot of other people did. I ran to the store. I got some <laughs> perishables for um, my uh, young children and um, got some cash out of the bank, extra cash, and, and put gas in my car and basically got prepared for a war. I, I just thought that's by, you know, noon or afternoon. I thought, well, <laughs> we're at war with someone. We don't maybe don't know who yet. But um, that was my reaction. So when I remember my reaction... And I see things like E-4B aircraft up in the sky, right on top of the Pentagon, on radar. I'm thinking to myself, well, weren't they watching CNN where it said America under attack or President Bush sitting in that elementary school? From 9 o'clock or 9.03 on, every, every network had a banner that said America under attack. And yet the President of the United States and the Secret Service detail that had him did not move forward to get him safe yeah it doesn't make it didn't make much sense that day i remember that as well i remember uh being very odd that they just let bush sit there and uh with the book in his the the kid's book in his hand as they were reading to the children and they didn't just rush him out of course the the reason that was given was that they didn't want to frighten the kids or whatever which always seemed like a really weak uh reason to me but yeah, I always thought that was extremely odd and, and against what you would think would be protocol to just kind of hustle him out, maybe even quietly and just, and, and just go. But no, they, they just sat there like yeah, nothing was going on. Over a half an hour, he sat there while we were all looking at our TV saying America under attack. Right. And TVs in that school too. And they also had TVs. Now I've been contacted by people that were like on the flight line at various different Air Force bases, Wright Patterson and big bases from coast to coast, and have found me or listened to an interview and have contacted me and told me, well, I was at, let's just say, Wright Patterson. And um, we could have scrambled planes, but we were given a stand down order. And the planes that would have immediately scrambled were. Uh, south of Wright-Patterson, in I don't know what state or where, how far south, on a military war game drill. But they were already up in the air. Now, those planes can, the fighter planes can go really, really fast. So if you're anywhere on the East Coast, you could be in New York pretty darn quick if somebody told you America's under attack. They'd go to New York. Uh, but that didn't happen either. So you see, there's all these things that don't happen uh, that should have happened. And I had uh, had scrambled uh, jets scrambled to to my aircraft, a commercial plane. I was working, and they are on your wingtips in about six minutes. Oh yeah, no doubt. Yeah. Being a, there, there's so many uh, air force bases or or any other kind of military base that's around. I, I, I that would not seem impossible to me that they would it would be almost be an instant response. Exactly, and it really is. They're really quick. And so when you look back at nine eleven, you see these. Planes like uh, Flight 77 that were supposedly flying around for an hour to an hour and a half, and no jets are scrambled to, uh, you know, take care of them or save them or whatever. Well, that's because they really weren't there. <laughs> so once I found out that all the phone calls were made from the planes being on the ground, then what happened, I started doing these, I probably did over well over 100 interviews from the first book, 
And uh, what happened is all these people started coming forward with more information. And they said, and this is pilots and air traffic controllers and military people, I mean, all walks of life, and, and saying, well, you're right. The phone calls had to be made on the ground. They had to be within 20 minutes of Boston, Logan. And that was a, a location they could have been brought to because they had the long enough runway. That also, I was contacted by someone, if you'll remember, I probably told you this, that was a reservist based there who was called up active duty that morning, denied entrance to the base for two to three days, and they were told, the reservists were all told that the base had been completely evacuated by all military personnel, except for maybe the people from the Pentagon that were there to uh, do what they did, <laughs> bring those aircraft in remotely. There was also, you said, a lady that, uh, th and we talked about this in the last show we had with you, but a lady that actually saw a plane, a commercial jetliner, flying into this Air Force base. Yes, I've actually got two eyewitnesses now. One, the first one that contacted me, and she's actually a character now in Methodical Deception, the second book, her story, and it's word for word, and that is a notarized affidavit. She's willing to go to court on her word and what she saw. That was uh, United 175, uh, 767. Then later on, after that book came out, uh, someone else contacted me. They saw American Flight 77 going in toward that same base. Okay, so American Flight 77, that's the one that they say hit the Pentagon, right? That's right. And then 175 was one of the other ones that hit uh, one of the tower. Okay. So when they saw go through like a hot knife through butter. Yeah. So if these planes were at this Air Force base, uh, and do you want to say the name of the base? Uh, sure, yeah, we can say it. It's Westover Air Force Base. It's by Chicopee, Massachusetts. Which I think is right outside Springfield. That's correct. And so if these planes were at this base, and, and as you say in the books, uh, that they were making the phone calls from this base, basically, from these hangars. The people were there because of the impossibility of them calling from any other, from up in the air, as the official story told us. Then if it's not the planes, and then, uh, like, the Pentagon, you know, I don't believe that was even a plane that hit the Pentagon. I and mean, if you look at the footage, I mean, it, it almost clearly really is a missile that hit it. Uh, but... We did clearly see planes hit the World Trade, the, the two towers of the World Trade Center. We actually only saw one. We actually only saw the one that supposedly hit the South Tower, and that's the one that airline people will tell you had an extra pod on the belly of the fuselage that uh -huh. didn't belong there. And that's often uh, something you see under uh, with a remote control aircraft. And if you'll remember the eyewitnesses, they said including the firefighters that were on the fireboat that it flew supposedly over um, or very near the towers, because you know how the river is right there, really close. And they were right there. And they called dispatch and said that was a, some type of military, a bomber-type aircraft. It was not commercial. Yeah, I remember hearing that that day, actually. Yeah, and the guy with the pilot glasses with the long <laughs> hair that's kind of balding, the weird hairline. Uh, and he said the same thing. It was gray. It had no logo. It had no windows. It was definitely not a commercial passenger jet. So a lot of the eyewitnesses that uh, were there 
uh, saw something totally different. And the first thing that hit the North Tower was called into a New York fire and police. And you can find these uh, on uh, YouTube. Uh, and it was called in as possibly missiles launched from the Woolworth building. Well, isn't there footage? I've seen footage of the of the because there was apparently a film crew that was doing a documentary on uh, the firefighters in New York City, and they heard a, a plane flying overhead, and he tilts the camera up, and you can actually see a plane hitting. This is the first plane that hit the World Trade Center. You can actually see that. That's the only footage that I know of that actually is is available of it. The only footage. Now, interesting thing about that footage, when you put it on YouTube or you know, view it on a video and put it down to the slowest speed you can get it on, instead of leaving uh, more of a heart-shaped wing vortex that a 767 would leave, it makes one single corkscrew tail. And if you turn that video down to slow motion, you'll be able to see that. I actually have that in still photos. So uh, a 767 does not fly like that, nor can it or was it, according to the data, uh, flying that fast because you cannot focus, even bringing it down to uh, the lowest speed you can get it on YouTube, you can't focus what it was. Now, we have eyewitnesses that called in police fire uh, into dispatch and 911 callers that said they were missiles launched from the Woolworth building. So that was not a 767 that we think we saw in that documentary either. And another thing about that documentary, that film was not handed over until the following afternoon, I believe it was, or late in the evening, early in the evening of the hmm. next day. But you'll remember George W. Bush said right away that he actually saw the first plane hit and Nobody saw that on 9-11. Right. No right. one saw it. And so how did he see it? That leads you to ask the question, was the CIA there filming? And was it streaming into his limousine in Florida? Because he was still in his limo when that building got hit. So, you know, there's all these uh, stories of politicians and uh, generals and such that, uh, that are blatant lies. That claim they saw something when it when it would have, by what we're being told, Im- impossible to have seen it. That's right. Yeah, it, and so when the other plane hits the other the South Tower, you know, by then the whole world's pretty much watching, and there is you do see the you do see the plane hit it. Uh, yeah, it's <laughs> it's very interesting to think about also too. That uh, World Trade Center 7, and I think there's some speculation that that you bring up in this latest book, that the possibility that it could have been planned to have been hit with something as well. But uh, it never was, and then was demolished in the way that it was demolished. Well, let me tell you a quick story. And this is how things are happening with me after these books come out. I had not quite finished uh, the methodical conclusion. I think it was finished, but maybe an editing process or in the putting it glued together process with the printers people out of my hands. But uh, it was near the end and it wasn't on the market yet. So nobody had read it. It wasn't on ebook either. 
I got an email from someone who was in intelligence and congratulated me on uncovering the 9-11 truth and the Israeli traveling artists as well as the artists that we later learned in methodical deception that were living in the World Trade Center towers for the year or a year and a half up leading up to 9-11. And they were from Austria, I believe. The, they are the gelatin group that wrote the book, The Bee Thing, that actually removed a window from the 91st floor uh, of the towers uh, a few months prior to 9-11, just to see, I guess, if they could. If they could. I don't know. They were sort of testing security. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, this intelligence officer uh, sent me an email very anonymously through one of my websites. And you can just do a contact Rebecca and write your note, and it goes off. So he didn't have to put a real email or anything like that in there. But he did say this. He was at an, what's called an OPSEC, O-P-S-E-C, convention. This is a convention of all kinds of intelligence and security people. In June of 2001, Tommy Frank, she'll remember his name, I'm sure, uh, came and spoke to them. And they were told in June of 2001 of the coming attack that there would be six targets. So I kind of worked this guy, his character, into methodical conclusion because it's very important. One of the things that he um, told me coincides with something that one of the listeners from one of the shows I did contacted me through a friend. And this woman who saw two men with a shoulder-held rocket grenade launcher or missile of some sort, she doesn't know what it's called, but it was something they were holding. It was a large tube, and it was at, in uh, outside of JFK, north of the runway of JFK. In November of 2001, um, American Airlines had an Airbus go down just two months after 9-11. I remember this. Yep. She saw these two men with this man pad. She didn't know what it was called. She saw it, and she saw it shoot, and she saw heard the plane crash, right? So this guy tells me, the security guy contacted me a couple of times now, that there were six targets. Well, we, now we only know that there was, you know, those four, or that what those four airplanes did. So that meant that there were two airplanes that somehow, quite possibly, were meant to go somewhere else and were not uh, successfully taken, hijacked remotely. And so... Uh, you know, the, one of the things I found in the FOIA data is that the Secret Service, this is abnormal, phoned to CNN with the information that Camp David had been hit by a commercial plane. But it, it never was. But uh, Secret Service would never call the media. That's not their protocol. And so what this guy told me was these Israeli artists were busted by uh, immigrations, and they were literally kicked out of the country. There was a little bit of a political and legal uh, shambles going on. They all had those prepaid telephones, cell phones, and uh, one of them's father was from South America and flew up and was trying to bully their way uh, with the United States uh, immigration system. But they knew that they had man pads in a large drainage uh, pipe in outside of Dallas-Fort Worth Airport, and they had intended to bring down a jumbo jet, like a 747, and on 
if you ever go to the airport and see a large aircraft like that, uh, when they finally lift off the ground, especially if they're full of fuel and going international and full of people, they kind of pull off the ground pretty slow. Those man pads have a reach of 13 to 1,500 feet. And the drainage ditch is right at the end of the runway. And they caught them. They knew they that was their plan. So um, there were more things planned. You're, you're not doing anything for Rob's fear of flying right now. I want you to know that. <laughs> yeah, not at all. <laughs> oh, speaking of which, where are you going on September 11th? I mean, New York City. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Why? <laughs> I had to ask the guy that made that plan. Oh, my. <laughs> you didn't pay me to do that. <laughs> this year. No way. Um, so, anyway, yeah, I found that really interesting um, that he's uh, gotten contacted with me. Uh, the intelligence knew this attack was coming. They were told it would be six, um, six events, not just the four. Now, so people are wondering, well, how come what happened? And so, in methodical conclusion, I hope I made it understandable enough. You see, each aircraft, when they are taken over by the remote control device, whether it's using the flight termination system, which both those airlines had, or a uh, 757 and 767s, I am being told by people from Boeing and elsewhere that they both were equipped right off the uh, assembly line with something that DARPA had been experimenting with since the late 70s, a remote control device. And under DARPA, they called it Operation Home Run. I think you can Google search that and learn a little bit more about it. Um, but in by the mid-80s, they had made drone aircraft, which are aircraft-like uh, drones, no people flying them. And they could do things like lock the cockpit door, make uh, the radios not work, and all this stuff, on 180 different type of aircraft. Our military. <laughs> so you see, when 9-11 came, that was a very easy thing for them to do, is to remotely control something, whether it was a commercial plane or whether it was a, um, a tanker aircraft or, you know, they had all kinds of planes that they could fly remotely. That's what a lot of people don't realize, because now we've become so used to drones being a part of the world now and a part of warfare. People don't realize that that technology was around back in the 80s. It actually started in the uh, Israeli war of uh, in the early 70s. Yom Kippur? I think so, yeah. yeah. 1970 or 73, somewhere in there. And the guy who invented those drones and used them in that war came uh, and joined uh, General Atomics, which I think became mm -hmm. involved with uh, as uh, DynCorp or uh, one of the big they all, they're incestuous. When you find, I have to chart all these companies, uh, DynCorp and uh, Raytheon and uh, Northrop Grumman and all of these companies, the whole military industrial complex, they, they spin off little sections and then they become either a different name or they uh, change uh, to a different company. Or It's just amazing when you get into it. It's, it's, uh, you have to really become a professional onion peeler. Right. That track. It, it's yeah. all the it's all the complex interweaving of the military industrial complex. I mean, basically, is what is is what you're getting out there. I mean, yeah, it's very incestuous. You're right about that. You're right about that. W let me ask you this: Why we we so we have this technology for drone? Why not just 
hijack the uh well for lack of a better term hijack the airplanes with the drone with the remote uh remotely and just plow them into these buildings uh well you know that's a good question um first off let me just explain why probably the other two aircraft were not uh successfully hijacked each aircraft is given a uh, hf radio signal it's much like a home phone is attached to your house Remember those? Right, <laughs> right. People have them, but you would uh-huh. have a specific number, or I could say like a VIN number for a vehicle. Each aircraft has this specific number, like a telephone number, HF radio signal. It's a frequency. That is the frequency that the remote control systems all work off of. And so if they know that ship 622, I'm just pulling a ship number, is going to be on the flight from Boston to L.A., with, let's say, Delta Airlines. And they're they're figuring this because it normally does this. But it, let's say the aircraft itself flew from San Francisco and it went to uh, Newark, and then from Newark it went up to Boston late at night. Well, when it got into Boston, let's say maybe the pilots said, oh, well, we got a fuel leak or we got an oil leak or there's something going on with engine number two. So the mechanics get there, they look at it, well, we got to fix this. So they pull it off and put a different 767 there. But that means the hijackers, the people that really did this, not the Arabs, they weren't Arabs, but our military that were going to remotely hijack these aircraft had the wrong phone number. Right. So last minute ship change would prevent that aircraft. And you, uh, you may not be aware of this, but this happens much more often than passengers are aware. Sometimes it happens while we're walking from our office to the aircraft to the gate, and we don't even know it because it doesn't matter to us which aircraft it is as long as it's a 767, and that's what we're a crew for. So it can be any anyone. It's like you have 15 different uh, Ford Escorts, and they all have a different number, 1 through 15. You don't care if you're driving number 1 or number 12 because you're going to drive a Ford Escort, right? Yeah, it doesn't matter, right? (laughs) Same thing with us. We don't care, and sometimes we don't even know. But I actually have been contacted by one of the crew members from Delta Flight 1989. You'll remember that's the flight that went into Cleveland. And some conspiracy nuts... <laughs> some crazy conspiracy about all the all the people from all four of the planes being... Uh, Landed in Cleveland. Well, they didn't know how to figure out flight time. They didn't understand the phone calls had to be made on the ground and all of that. So, But Delta 1989 did, in fact, land in Cleveland. And they landed in Cleveland because someone in Washington, D.C. at the FAA headquarters told them they had a hijacker on board. And the captain said, no, we don't. We're having breakfast. Huh. And they convinced them to land. Um you know, a little after 10 that morning, but that possibly could be the aircraft that they thought they had remote, uh, they were going to remotely hijack and make it look like it went into Camp David. By the way, nothing crashed anywhere near Camp David. Right. So how do you explain that? What we had was several branches of the military and uh, intelligence and those kind of people that were making phone calls and creating a lot more chaos. So they were just creating chaos. You know, there were a ton of rumors that day. I remember hearing that the Sears Tower in Chicago got hit. That's the one that I remember hearing. 
And then that being said, then no, nothing, nothing ever happened there. Uh, I, and it was very strange just how many rumors that there were and how much false information was just being bandied about on that day. People were, you know, it was nothing I heard on the news. It was just something that somebody else said or claimed that they had heard. Uh, well, that's true, but you'll remember the phone call from Peter Hansen, Flight uh, United 175. Right. Actually, according to the government data, the plane was actually just toward the east of Newark International, above the Hudson and the Statue of Liberty. He was looking at the Manhattan skyline. He was three minutes before impact, and it was Peter Hansen who told his father on a cell phone call that the hijackers had told him, now they didn't speak English, so I don't know how they could have done that, that they were going to fly them into Chicago and into a building. Well, at that time, they were 5,000 feet above the ground. So he knew they were, if he were on that plane, and that plane was really there, he would have said, we're landing somewhere, maybe uh, LaGuardia or Newark, because they were that close to the ground. Now, keep this in mind. When your aircraft is 10,000 feet, uh, and you, they ask you to turn off your electronic devices, mm-hmm. ladies and gentlemen, you know, we're... Yeah. Starting our final descent, please turn off all your electronic devices. Keep them turned off and stowed until we are inside the passenger terminal, right? That's 10,000 feet. They were half that. And he said that he thought the hijackers were going to fly that plane to Chicago and into a building. And that's when they actually evacuated the Sears Tower. And Larry Silverstein owned the Sears Tower as well. Really? The guy who owned (laughs) the World Trade Centers, yes. Wow, that's that's a that's a interesting coincidence in quotation marks, right? So the other targets were possibly Building Seven and possibly Camp David. Yeah, possibly uh, the Sears Tower. I don't yeah, know. yeah. It's hard to say now. We don't know where the Shanksville plane was. What their target, you know, really was. Right. Do you think that that was the Shanksville? That that was all? Because because my feeling on that that day was that. Uh, Flight 93, I really felt like, and not knowing the information that I do now through your books and others, that I really felt like that plane had been shot down and that was all just a made-up cover story to make people feel good about the event. Yeah, unfortunately, uh, the shoot-down order wasn't out there in time for that to have happened. But uh, quite possibly, they they could have just shot down some type of drone. Yeah. I mean, we have tons of drones, and we have made drones. Uh, In the methodical conclusion, when my characters, Ruth Ann and Mark, go to the Mojave Air and Spaceport, in front of there is an aircraft that is, and then she tells the story. When they turn this uh, Phantom Jet fighter, it's an old Vietnam-era fighter jet, uh, when they turn it into a drone, they paint the wingtips orange. So, I mean, it's all right there. I mean, she was reading off the website. and Because at Mojave Air and Spaceport, you can just do a drive-through uh, tour, and it's all right there. You can read it, or you, I think you can push a button and listen to it and tell you <laughs> if you have speakers on your computer. Uh, yeah. Let's talk about that place, the Mojave Air and Spaceport, because, I mean, this is a place that I never had ever heard of till I read this book. And what's the, what's some of the, what's the significance of that place? Well, for the for the nine eleven uh, part, you know, the significance is that there were actually people that were 
uh, working there that saw a U.S. Air 757 aircraft that was parked. This is like a boneyard where aircraft are usually parked and they're parted out. Or in the case of Mojave, um, I had people there tell me that they could make just about any aircraft there airworthy within 30 days. But there was actually someone who uh, worked there and watched them put a fuel bladder into a 757, which would allow a 757, if it knew where it was going, to fly just about anywhere. Let's say from Boston to Madrid, Tel Aviv, just about anywhere. Right. Or in Europe or the Middle East. And uh, so it had this fuel bladder in it. And then um, actually, you know, readers are going to meet some air traffic controllers and uh, one of the people that I met was actually working one of the air traffic control centers. And um, that aircraft would leave on Saturday nights around dusk. Uh, it was still a little bit daylight. And uh, was in a, what's called a near miss with a Continental 737. And it was flying what's called VFR. It's visual flight. Uh, and commercial planes cannot fly under visual flight as they have to file a flight plan. So when you take off from point A to point B, you have your plan and you check in with these little waypoints along the way. It's against the law for a commercial plane to fly without a flight plan with passengers on board. And so this plane was flying VFR and it almost hit a 737 by Continental. And, of course, they were screaming at the air traffic controllers and those people actually found me. Hmm. People involved in that incident found me. And so they started to watch this 757 and it was flying. It would get to Las Vegas and file a flight plan from there to Washington, D.C., Dulles International. When was this? When did this occur? It was happening for uh, four to six months or so before 9-11 happened. And it never flew again after 9-11. Is there speculation that this could have been one of the planes that... Uh, was involved, or one of the drones that was involved? No, this was a getaway plane. Those people that uh-huh. used those phone calls that were really dead. Now, I hate to give away this story, but this is the, let me just tell you this. This is the hardest thing for me. Because when Methodical Illusion came out, I had lots of people ask me about Barbara Olson, who right. made a phone call to her, her husband who lied all about it. And then also, uh, if I thought crew members were involved. And now, as a researcher, I try not to get involved emotionally with uh, religion or any preconceived notions or anything like that. I just try to go in scientifically. But when they asked me about that, I just thought, well, of all the flight attendants, man, I flew for 32 years. I know a lot of girls and guys that flew. And so I went into cognitive dissonance and denial that the crew could be involved. Until one day, I was contacted by someone who asked me to make a phone call and connect with the son of one of the flight attendants who was working one of those four aircraft. And he is a character in the story. Of course, I changed his uh, name and details and stuff. But he told me that right before 9-11, his father took him for a drive, came home. He was uh, based back in Boston came home and took his son, who was around 19, 18, 19, somewhere in there, at the time, and this was the week before 9-11, that the CIA had offered him a job and that if he took the job, that he could never see his son again. Hmm. 
And when I had a really lengthy discussion with the son, I found out that this flight attendant, who had been a cop for over 20 years, was a black belt in karate and martial arts. And I asked him, what do you think your dad would have done if these five foot six, five foot seven hijackers came with a box cutter, took over one of the aisles of the 767 he was working? He said he would have kicked their ass. He probably could have killed them with his bare hands. And I said, so why do you think he didn't? He said, because he took the job with the CIA. There were a lot of people involved that made phone calls that have gone on to be heroes and have uh, monuments built to them in Israel and other places that uh, were what we call handlers. They were hired by the CIA. That was a very hard part for me to digest that, and it took me quite a long time to be able to figure out how to deliver that, but it is true. And then after methodical conclusion came out, a Delta flight attendant contacted me. She uh, was just a little bit junior to me in years, so she started flying in 77 or so. And she told me that in 2004, so she was 49 years old, that she was on a flight, Delta, as a working crew member, and they had a CIA recruiter on board that came back to the galley and talked to them and invited them all to the office to interview. And he said, we love flight attendants. Now, I'd never had this experience as a flight attendant before, but I flew mostly international too. So she said he uh, explained to them how they like to have flight attendants because they have a job as a flight attendant and then they can go on and do CIA stuff. And uh, I said, how old were you when they were trying to recruit you? She was 49. And she's, she had quite a few years of seniority. And you see, when you, when you do that as, for a living, you just, initially, I just thought there's no way. But in fact, I talked to a family member, and I'm pretty convinced that more than one crew member had been hired by the CIA and was inside as a working crew member on those planes to create the fake hijackings. Wow. You know... I have often wondered about that and less the crew members than the actual passengers on the planes. Uh, when you look at if you, if other yourself and other people have looked at those passenger manifests and a lot of the people, as you've described in your books, have so many connections to intelligence. They have connections to strange tech companies. They have connections to military industrial complex companies. A lot of those people on those planes did. A lot of them, some of them were flying from Washington, D.C. and other places. But I've always found that very interesting and a very suspicious. And also the fact that these were continental flights and that they were not uh, full to capacity at all. That's always been suspicious to me. So I, that is extremely interesting that the possibility that people were in the crew may have actually been in on it from the beginning. And those were the people and some of the passengers as well. Don't forget on, on flight 11, the first plane out of Boston, there was a special agent from the Israeli special forces called Sayeret Matkal. who right. was anti-hijacking specialist. And his friends said he could kill any human being with a pen and a credit card. And he supposedly was killed by a plastic box cutter. Yeah, it doesn't add up, does it? It doesn't. When you put right. all 
together. The two gentlemen that phoned in from United 175 over Newark International, the Hudson River, Manhattan, and the Statue of Liberty, both those men, one worked for MITRE, and he was a pilot. He should have been able to see Newark International 5,000 feet below him. It's a pretty good view from there. I've been on it. So, uh, and the other guy the same. He should have recognized the Hudson River. Uh, he both worked for uh, MITRE and then uh, Time Trade of Waltham, Massachusetts. Huge uh, government contractors, military con contractors for the DOD. And so they're both telling opposite stories. The guy who was the pilot that worked for MITRE, he was a radar specialist. He told his mother less than three minutes before supposed impact right there over the Hudson River that the, he thought they were in Ohio. Hmm. Now, it's impossible for him to be on that plane if that plane was there. So what, you know, again, it just led me to believe that the plane obviously wasn't there or he'd have been able to see it. A, a first-year flight attendant can recognize Newark International. Yeah, it, it seems that like this is the script element of it, that there is a script that's being read from that not necessarily anybody has really given thought to that if it's been that it's consistent with what's later being said or what later is the official story. So you see that a lot in this. Oh, yeah. And that particular gentleman, Brian Sweeney was his name on United 175. He also said. Now, this is three minutes before impact. Now, 5,000 feet, anybody knows that. Because remember, the light goes on, the fasten seatbelt sign's been on, and you're in that last few minutes of the flight from 10,000 feet down to landing. People know this, right? You guys know this if you've flown you know, two or three times. The chime goes off, you're 10,000 feet, you're halfway to the runway. Uh, this guy's 5,000 feet up. And he says to his mother, not only does he think they're over Ohio, but a group of passengers are going to take over the cockpit. That's the scenario for Flight 93. Someone told him the yeah. whole entire scenario of the day. That's the let's roll scenario. That was completely fraudulent. And on that plane, Flight 93, there was rugby players. All the guys that supposedly made phone calls were on the phone to other people and that were going to rush the cockpit. Those guys were all six foot two to six foot four, 225 pounds. Um, played college football, uh, rugby, really big. One of them was a judo champion, and they all did nothing. Hmm. So you see, when you start to look at the passengers, yes, indeed, there are a lot of passengers. So when we have now, we know the CIA was involved, and then you have the FBI covering it up and taking things. We talked about before we came on the air of a video that we've seen on YouTube that shows a cruise missile hitting the Pentagon. And it's sometimes you see it, it's reversed. You know, like the YouTube's inside out or backwards. There's numbers up there. And it's obviously taken from a military camera. And what I'm doing right now is I am taking all the radar that we have of all the military jets that were circling around the Pentagon before it got hit. And we're looking because if you look at that video, you can tell it's taken from probably two to 3,000 foot elevation. It's not taken from the gas station across the way. It's taken from the air. And you can tell that the aircraft that's taking the pictures is moving. Just look at it. You can see it. And it's easy to find that on YouTube. Interesting. And so we are right now, because we have all the radar at four second sweeps and their latitude, longitude, location. And there was a C-130 
that later happened, coincidentally, to fly right over Indian Head, Pennsylvania, and Shanksville. And this was flying over the Pentagon. Exactly. And then it flew right over Shanksville, right after supposedly he's the one who said he saw the plane crash and the black smoke from Flight 93, supposedly, at Shanksville. He just happened to be right there. But he was also at the Pentagon, and he was also at about 3,000 feet, because I have all of the data on him. And there was also an E-4B right there. What is, he, what is an E-4B? It's the doomsday plane. It's a 747. So, you know, they're pretty This good. is like the looking glass or whatever? Uh-huh, exactly. Yeah. And uh, we're just now, uh, the air traffic controllers there are just now uh, getting into exactly where all of the military planes were. Because remember, there were war games going on. Right. And so there were a lot of military aircraft up there before the Pentagon was hit. None of them saw a 757. Now, if you go to an airport and watch, on, use a flight radar 24 on your computer or your phone. And go watch airplanes come in and find yourself a 757 and a 767. One of the things I found really interesting searching, researching this last book, the guys in the tower and the air traffic controller at Newark is about four miles across the Hudson River from the Twin Towers. She had a perfect view from the end of that runway. If you were sitting on a plane or them up in the tower, and when they were told that that plane that they were looking for on radar, nobody could see it. Uh, they were looking all over for uh, some primary radar or something to indicate that this plane that they lost, American 11 or uh, United 175, came in. And they initially saw a, uh, into the building a circular hole. And they said this, there's no way that could be the 7-6 we're looking for because millions of people would have seen an aircraft because it would have been around 800 to 1,000 feet off the ground level, off the sidewalk. Oh, yeah. And yeah, so absolutely. if you've ever been to New York City, yes, millions of people would have seen it. And millions of people would have taken photographs of it, too, because when you see a jumbo jet that close to the ground. And again, if you go to your international airport, watch this and think about 9-11. And you're going to think, yeah, yeah, right. Nobody saw anything. Well, here's another thing. In my Facebook group, I have a group. It's called The Real Rebecca Roth Show and Friends on Facebook. And I posted this. A friend of mine is actually demoing this. And it's, you can find this on uh, this video on YouTube. It's called uh, Microsoft HoloLens, H-O-L-O-N-L-E-N-S, HoloLens, Holo, H-O-L-O, Lens. And what you're going to see is a guy wearing uh, a virtual glasses. And he's seeing, you're seeing monsters and uh, high-tech monster robot things come out of his living room wall in his home on a stage and you're seeing a photographer with a camera filming the hologram now they let that sink in a second we had hologram technology that could be filmed by cameras seen by eyes and filmed by cameras since the mid 80s so people always want to know well if the planes all went to massachusetts what hit the buildings well, go look at that technology because you've got somebody that's wearing the virtual eyeglass or headgear. It's not quite that virtual reality helmet. It's a little bit lighter, uh, closer to a Google Glasses. And he is actually playing a game, a virtual game, and you're going to see these things come at him. And the, there is someone with a the camera filming it because the film 
it can be filmed. They had filmable camera eye film, filmable holograms in the early 80s. And that's in an army document I have. So you think the planes, the, the, well, whatever it was that hit it, do you think the, the, that, 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 that what you saw was holograms and maybe it was, uh, there was a bomb in the building that exploded at the same time? Well, we do know that there was explosives set because we have thermite and nanothermite found in the dust. Right. Uh, there also, more than likely, were other weapons used that I can't tell you about because I, I know some of the guys I'm talking to have slipped and told me things that they, whoops, I shouldn't have said that. I'm sure it's still classified. But trust me, I say this. Um, there are weapons uh, that we don't know about, that are not public knowledge, that are classified still 15 years later, that were in use in 2001. And they went to Iraq and Afghanistan in 2002 and three. And those people tell some stories of, Weapons and injuries from said weapons that liquefied human bodies and did things that they couldn't even tell what hit them. They have no idea because they don't have any knowledge of the weaponry either. So there were several things used. The point was they wanted to make sure that those buildings uh, came down in a pile of uh, you know, dust and debris. And there's some kind of weapon that was used because the paper didn't burn. And, you know, I had some firefighting experience, and we uh, have firefighter training in the airline because we have three different extinguishers on board for different fires. So we practice putting fires out with them. But did you notice the paper didn't burn from the towers? Yeah. It's all you see a lot of paper uh, coming down to the ground, like snow. Yeah. Like in your house or an office fire or something, that paper would have burnt. And so there was some type of weapon that we just don't have the technology. I can't tell you what it was. I don't have a drawing of it. I don't. Mm-hmm. And so I can only speculate. But, yes, we do know that the four aircraft were uh, taken so the phone calls could be made and were made. And some of the passengers and some of the crew were taken out of Westover. And in order to get out, they shut down the radar. Long-distance radar was shut down all the way up the east, the northeast corridor. And that's in the book as well, and that's in the FOIA data. We found that. The long-distance radar out of what's called North Truro, Cape Cod, was inoperative that day. Unheard of. But so was a lot of other radar. Now, the E-4Bs and the speckled trout and the aircraft that were in the sky that morning, they had the ability to blind radar as well, or make turn it into uh, out of service. It, it, fry it, in other words, just fry it so it didn't work. So when this aircraft took off, it just needed to go up to where it could be in contact with the speckled trout and navigate it across the Atlantic. What is the, spe- the speckled trout? The speckled trout is a, um, you can kind of Google search this, quite a bit of information. Uh, it was uh, built in Edwards Air Force Base. And it's an old 707. It's a four-jet aircraft. And just to put it in perspective, John Kennedy's Air Force One was a 707. Okay. It it was a high-tech plane in its day until the 747s came out. But it is full of high-tech communication and radar. It is basically a command and control center that can, can like much like the uh, E-4Bs, the uh, doomsday planes are often referred to. 
They can be the command and control center for a war anywhere in the world on the planet. That's how good their communication system is. Now, the interesting thing about this is that the, um, the speckled trout, I won't drop any names here, but the speckled trout claimed that they were out over the Atlantic, but I have their flight plan, and I'm here to tell you they had barely entered Canadian airspace just outside of Bangor, Maine, when the first aircraft, was, uh, first tower was supposedly hit. So when I saw that, I thought, well, why is this guy lying? And then all of these other people came forward and all the other pieces of the puzzle came together. So what we found is the stolen gold from the, ta from the World Trade Center towers. We all know that the gold was taken out. Remember, there were some trucks that were stuck with that had broken down, and they found that in the rubble of the towers. That gold had been transported uh, from Stewart International Air Force Base uh, just up, up the road, up the river, actually, from New York. Uh, into Mojave, and yes, there are eyewitnesses to that, in a Russian cargo ship aircraft, flown by British pilots. So who took the gold? You know, I'm not quite positive. I've been told by speculation by people that probably know more than I, that that gold was kind of on loan from the Chinese from the I think it was the early 30s when uh, the United States uh, uh, financial uh, health was faltering and that they had made a deal for X amount of years and that that needed to be, the physical gold needed to be returned to China. And on one of Obama's uh, trips, it actually went there and was removed. But it was put into some ammo bunkers in Mojave. Until it was taken somewhere. I'm not even sure of that. That's speculation where it hmm. went. I don't have any proof of where it went to. Yeah, that's a, that's an interesting aspect that you don't hear too much about the uh, about the nine, whole events of 9/11. And I want to make a statement here about the military. Um, you know, I have always thought to myself for a, for a long time since I started studying all this the 9/11. Uh, true stuff for lack of a better term I, i've always found it very interesting and very revealing that you know if terrorists had wanted to hit the world trade center terrorism usually is you want to kill as many people as possible for whatever ideological stance that you want to go for you want you want the the amount the biggest amount of death so if it was terrorist, it would have made more sense to have hit the World Trade Center sometime later in the morning, early in the afternoon, when the building was full capacity. I remember hearing that day about it could be as many as 10,000 people. Well, it turned out to be 3,000. And part of the reason was, was it, it had happened so early in the morning when so few people had actually had not gotten to work that day. I had not gotten to work yet that day, I mean. And it makes me think of when the military pulls off operation, they want to have the least amount of casualties possible. <laughs> you got that right. Now, here's something else I discovered. You were asking about the loads of the aircraft. If all those airplanes would have been full, they would have had 800 bodies to take care of. Yeah. Or roughly. I don't know exactly how many were handlers and got on that 757 and, and took off. But roughly 800 plus crew. And um, so the, one of the things I found interesting is that American Airlines, and I'm not sure about United. I know United lost all of their computer systems sometime in the middle of all this that morning, and their Internet system went down. 
uh, their phone system in Chicago went down. But uh, American had just had their whole system, reservation system, reworked by Rockwell Collins. And Rockwell Collins is one of those companies that is neck deep in all of this stuff as well. Just coincidentally, they had just reworked and upgraded the system that should have recorded all of Betty Ong's uh, 27-minute phone call, but only got four and a half minutes. That's because Rockwell Collins went in there and made sure that it would mess up. And so they also had control of uh, through signal intelligence, because one of the things that Sayeret Metcall agents are involved in is uh, signal intelligence or what's called phone tapping. And so they were able to control the reservations, computer systems, move passengers out of there, lighten the loads, not accept any more passengers, show the airplane full on the computer. And they had that ability and they were involved. And so instead of having 800 bodies to get rid of or thereabouts, we had around 250, give or take the right. crew members and the handlers. So That's uh, between four planes, by the way. That's right. right. So there's a lot of people that were really involved, and there's a lot of people. What I'm finding is that there's a lot of people from day one that not just the man on the street, and that's why I wrote the books as novels, was – it's so horrific. I mean, as a researcher, I'm still, my mind's blown away from the third book. I still can't, how, how am I going to do an interview on this? Because it's just so mind-blowing. And I don't want to give away the whole book because I want people to get it and read it and let it sink in. Because sometimes people have to read these books twice because they read through really quick. <laughs> it's fast moving. But they want to, you want to absorb this information because it is mind-blowing. Yeah. I'm still by it i'm sure you probably are too there's a lot of info in all three books really i mean each book has is chock full of info and i, I did want to ask why did you decide to choose fiction to convey the message you know as somebody who did the research and as an airline insider when i made that decision to i started writing a novel just a fun frivolous girl book for summer and then i discovered the hijackers were alive I thought, you know what, I'm going to stick with the novel because it's easier for you out there to go watch a movie or read a book. In the back of your mind, you can think this is just a novel. This is just a movie. This isn't real, but it is real. And it's easier to digest. And my mission was to wake people up to the truth and what really happened and to be able to lay it out there in a non-threatening way. I wanted to reach a, the largest audience I could because I really feel... Like, people in this country really need to wake up. You know, I've autographed books out to probably 20-some countries. And people in other countries seem to be a lot more awake than Americans are in general to the New World Order and all of this stuff that's coming down the pike for us. And so part of the reason was I wanted to make it easier to digest. So in the back of your head, you could still a little bit stay in denial and think, yeah, it's just a novel. Uh, and, and then let it sink in. And one of the things that's really fascinating is when people finish reading this series, they contact me and they are awake. They are awake and they thank me. And I get these emails every single day from people that not only did they wake themselves up, but then they've shared the books with, you know, their spouse or their mother or father or their office people. And so now everyone around them is awake. And so oftentimes I'll get, well, I woke up after reading your, your books and then 
I just shared them, and now everybody's awake, and it's a whole different feeling at the office <laughs> or in the family gathering. Yeah, very, very, very nice. Yeah, but I, I think it's a good way to get it to get it across to people because instead of it being a dry kind of uh, a dry kind of work that's just facts, people can become involved in the story as well. And and you do really write characters that you you come to care about as well. So I think that, I think that's a good, a good way to do it. I find it very interesting as well. And you can put in some speculation without it being, without people accusing you of, of writing nonfiction of saying, well, it's supposed to be nonfiction. How can you speculate? Well, you can speculate a little more in a fictional, in a fictional novel, the, the, Uh, what you can't, the, 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 you can fill the holes a little bit better, I think. You know, in the third book, I used it. I introduced a new character, Dante Wilcox. And Dante Wilcox had served in the military, and he'd been a sniper. And he's home now, and he's finished. He's retired. But he's dealing with guilt. And he's dealing with what we often hear is called post-traumatic stress. But I think it's guilt. We don't know how to, how to absorb and how to compartmentalize or how to deal with it or bring it out of the compartment it's been in and deal with it. Bring it to your surface. And it causes a lot of problems for a lot of the soldiers. So he's a completely different character than has been in the books before. And I chose to create him. Uh, and it sounds kind of like God. But, I mean, I chose to create <laughs> him so that he could really relate to a lot of guys that actually thought they were doing the patriotic thing by signing up to go to Iraq and Afghanistan. Right. And got there and found out it was a lot about oil and gas lines and heroin. And that they actually had to kill civilians, and they did. And they're dealing with all this guilt and post-traumatic stress, and and they're starting to hate the government. And, you know, not too long ago, there was a group of people in Oregon that were going to try to take over a government land. And I think they're all in jail still waiting trial. But some of them had been Marines, and some of them had served in Iraq, and some of them, and they came back, and now they hate the government. And I wanted to be able to grab that person so that they they could relate to him. And most people really relate to the protagonist, Vera Hansen, in the first book because she's in total denial. And as an airline person, to tell you, I was in in that denial she was in. I did not want to think that our government could allow it, could be a part of it, could have planned it, anything. I just didn't want to go there. I was more comfortable in my little bubble, and a lot of people are. But we, we are on the precipice right now of something major happening. And I'm getting contacted by people that are in the financial world and psychic people and Christian people that just have this level of discernment and that are constantly in prayer or people that meditate and think something's about to happen. And there's just too many people and they contact me and you know, ask me, what do I think? And I just use my logic of what I see stacking up here and... Um, it looks like we are right now on the precipice of another 9-11, including, you just read recently, that the Pentagon has misplaced $6.5 trillion. The day before 9-11, Donald Rumsfeld told us they had misplaced $2.3 trillion. Never found it, never talked about it again. But we're right there again, where the, their military, the Pentagon, has six point five trillion dollars they cannot account for how does that happen 
How does that even, like, it it blows my mind of how that even happens. Here we have the Pentagon again, just like prior to 9-11, making an announcement of this huge amount of money missing. And then last time it was 2.3, this time uh, 6.5. So there's things that are lining up that makes us very vulnerable. Uh, Looks kind of like they'd like to do something to stop the election uh, also. So... I think as a nation, we're very vulnerable, and I get a lot of people that are contacting me about that. Mm. Yeah, I, yeah, I think a lot of people feel that there's something coming down the pike. I want to talk about in the time that we have left with you. Let's talk about this issue of, of trolls. And when you came out with the second book, I believe that there was – you got a lot of flack about – well, there was a lot of this debate about who you were, and there was all these people talk uh, saying that you were this person or you were that person. And we actually talked about that on the show back in February. I played a clip where you kind of explained things and what was going on. And, you, you know, I, I want to go over that a little bit about what happened with you there. Okay, well, uh, let me just say this. You know, I wrote these books as novels. I never, uh, I didn't write an autobiography, although I will now, because I didn't know anybody would really was interested in me. Um, I've never been a publicity hound, and I'm very protective of my family. And one interesting thing uh, that I found was nothing in the books is about me, not a thing. Uh, the main character, Vera Hansen, she's a combination of lots of flight attendants I know, Uh the trolls were attacking, but not my research or nothing about 9-11, but my not being a flight attendant or a purser or an airline person. Nothing about my research, not the fact that cell phones could have been made or, or that uh, protocols really were followed because they don't know what they are and they don't know the code word. And by the way, um, I don't know if I left this out last time, but it's not in use anymore. But the word methodical was one of our code words for hijacking, and only a flight attendant would know that. Right. So um, what I found was really weird is this one guy in particular, this Fetzer character, uh, would do uh, – he has claimed I'm 20 different people, including a man who has contacted me living in Australia, an older woman in Australia, uh, dozens of people, probably 20 that I, I'm aware of that people have told me about or that have come forward and said, oh, this guy is crazy. He thinks I'm you. Um, so it's been really weird. Um, but these are the guys that think the flight attendants' voices were voice morphed. So there are people that like this character who claim that nobody died. Well, I'm here to tell you I've had conversations with uh, passengers and crew members' families, people that died in the towers, uh, obviously the CIA guy that took the job with the CIA, his son, that was a crew member. And the reason they think that no planes ever took off was because they don't understand that the BTS, which is called the Bureau of Transportation Statistics, was voluntary, and it was kept on flight numbers. And whenever there's a crash or an incident like 9-11 hijacking kind of thing, those flight numbers are retired. So since they don't know how the airline industry works, I guess my airline career was really a threat to them. But the most important thing that I discovered, now keep in mind, Fetzer started attacking me uh, over a year and a half ago via email, cyber-stalking me with another guy named Alan Powell, who is, I guess, his some kind of handler and lives in uh, Australia. 
Maybe that's why they think I'm someone in Australia. I don't know. How do they uh. accept that I don't have an accent? Because you can't get rid of that accent. <laughs> but um, it's just weird. But what I found is that it's like, it's like a jealous junior high girl stuck in an old man's body. I don't get it. I mean, it obviously has no interest in the truth. And, you know, one of the things I found is a lot of the 9-11 truthers, some of them were eight years old when this happened. And I had been flying for almost 30 years when it happened and studied crashes for 30 years and knew the protocol for hijacking for 30 years. They hadn't changed, by the way. That for some reason, my airline expertise was very, very threatening to them. So they decided I was some other people. Now, I don't write, my books are not about me. So they never have been about me. I'm not into publicity. Uh, I'm out to wake people up to the truth. These internet trolls, I, I had no idea they existed. But these people from the supposed 9-11 truth movement obviously have no interest in the truth. They don't know anything about aviation, air traffic control, aircraft, uh, FAA protocols, or anything else. They have no experience at that, at that at all, so they can't dispute what I'm saying other than claim I didn't fly and I was something else. Um, and the thing I find really interesting about the 9-11 truthers is that not one of them has ever asked to see a copy of the Freedom of Information Act data that I have in the external hard drive. Now, I got it from a guy who later joined with Fetzer who asked me to keep his name out of the public, so... I did, and I still will do that. But now I have in my website, RebeccaRoth.com, I have a troll page, and it explains some of my experience with some of these people that have interviewed me and then turned against me and made false claims, and just crazy claims. But the postage for that that I, said, I told you about earlier was $9.11, and they called me a liar. And this guy tried to say that I stole the Freedom of Information Act data. There's no way you can steal a terabyte of data on an external hard drive. You mail someone. He mailed it back to me. I paid the postage. And I have the receipt on my RebeccaRoth.com troll page. Now, what's really weird is I have been attacked for my hair, my glasses. I'm fat. And, you know, I'm a grandmother of eight, so I don't care what they say. Uh, and they just make up crazy stories. But again, they don't want to see the documents. They aren't challenging what I found. They're just attacking my hair, my makeup, my weight, <laughs> and claim I'm, I never flew. Well, how would I know the word methodical if I never flew? I've right. done interviews on my own YouTube channel with other flight attendants. Uh, I'm, we speak our own language, and I'm very careful not to put too much of that out, but just enough so you can see that we do. Uh, and, and I could talk uh, airline lingo, and you wouldn't even know what I was saying because only other flight attendants know that. So none of the aviation experts that have joined my team and helped me uncover what we did have ever questioned my airline career. Only Jim Fetzer and the trolls that he recruited, and he did recruit trolls. Um, Kurt, uh, Kurt Haskell, Mike Adams, these people all tried to find me. Well, I think I told you early on, I thought the NSA would try to find me. So I learned internet, uh, I can, you can look at where I'm coming from and I'm in a totally different state, any given conversation. Uh, I've learned how to do proxy servers and I use them and I learned firewalls and different things. I thought that I was going to go up against the likes of, you know, Edward Snowden's co-workers. So what, uh, what really got me is around Christmas last year, 
Dean Ryan, who is a friend of, uh, what's his name, uh, Stone, Young Stone, uh, Sean Stone, called me up and told me they had found my adult children. They made my home address public and my children who are in college. That, I don't have children in college, by the way. They're all out. Uh, and that I was pregnant. And I was pregnant. I said, me? I'm pregnant? Yeah, we know you are. And they made videos about this. <laughs> <laughs> And I'm like, oh, my God, I thought it was, listen, here's what I thought. I thought it was like a candid camera thing. I thought they were doing it some sort of spoof. I, I couldn't believe it. I have that on MP3 because I hit my record button quite a ways into it because I kept saying, are you, is this some kind of a joke? I mean, I haven't been able to physically get pregnant for, you know, over 15 years. And And they were so sure that they had found me. But not only did they do that. But they exposed this woman who they claimed I was and her home address and her home phone number and her children in college. And I'm not her. And it has gone on with several different people they've done that to. And some are people that I did know and that were friends. They they think that's who I am. And it's weird because isn't that strange that they don't care about the 9-11 truth? They haven't read the books. And surely nobody who read these three books would ever come out and say I was ever with the CIA. Well, you know, the point that we made when we when we did our show about it was I don't it was almost like they didn't understand the concept that of a of a pin name and what that meant. Yeah, it's really weird because you know Victor Thorne who just died? Mm-hmm. He that's not his name. Right. And JK Rowling's. Right. She writes still to this day under two or three other pen names. And it's not about me. None of this is about me. It's none of your business where I live or what I eat or where my kids are. Right. And it sure as hell isn't something I would share with anyone, Pete Santelli or any, uh, anyone, about where my children are because I'm protective of them, as you would be if you had kids. I don't know if you do. But as anyone would. So what gives a troll the right to expose somebody, somebody's? I mean, they've done this to me for 19, 20 months. I, I, and quite frankly, I wasn't involved with the Internet, so I'm just totally blown away that people are like this. And some of them are adults as old as I am and older. Well, you know, so, um, Pete Santilli, I mean, he's sitting in jail right now. You mentioned the whole Oregon thing. He's somebody that has been uh, in in many ways exposed as, as a kind of like a agent provocateur kind of type person. Yeah. Well, I think he might have been, but I think they were done with him. And Yeah. You know, he did the same thing. He called me and, and threatened me. And here's what Pete Santelli did to me after he interviewed with me and was bloviating that I had de- uh, dedicated the second book to the crew of the USS Liberty. And he was just so bloviating over that. What a wonderful thing to do, blah, blah, blah. He calls me up just a few days after our second interview. And he got lots of viewers on his interviews. And that's why he wanted me back for the second book. And threatened to expose me because I think he thought I was that woman in Texas, too. If I didn't produce proof that I was a flight attendant, and I'm here to tell you, I retired in 2004. It is now 2016. I have probably moved six times. I don't have pay stubs. I, it, was, it was a job. It wasn't a souvenir from a rock concert. I might have some of those, actually. <laughs> but uh, I may have my tickets from seeing Hendrix, but I wouldn't keep my pay stubs from that job. It was a job, and we worked our ass off. And right. 
and then he needed to, he needed to see proof. And since I didn't give it to him, cause I'm not going to give anybody my personal information. And now you can see why. And now I'm really grateful that I taught myself some cybersecurity. Yeah. I, I really, I thought I was up against the U S government, but it's just internet trolls that think they can find you. Yeah. A lot of it, I think is competition. And I'm going to tell you this too. Uh, I really think part of it is because you're female. Well, that's really that, true. That you got into the, that you were like this interloper into the boys club. Well, I think I'll, that was part of it. Yeah. One of the things someone said is, well, how come we've never heard of you before? Well, because I was busy being a grandmother to eight grandkids. Yeah. I never, I mean, why would you hear from me? I mean, like all of a sudden I was this 9-11 superstar and they hadn't heard me. So I had to be a fraud. But, you know, Fetzer's um, handler had contacted my publisher in an email and it started out you're a fraud that's their favorite thing to say you're a fraud and then invited him to do a radio show with jim fetzer at that time the book was number nine out of eight and a half million on amazon that's pretty impressive i mean it is just <laughs> it is because i have to tell you honestly i thought maybe 25 people would read this book after my first book i never right. dreamed I'd write three or be talking about writing two more. And then I will do an autobiography and all of those trolls, I have all their email. I have all of that information. I have all of that experience. It's all there. And I will have them all star in a chapter or two. <laughs> I didn't know they were interested in me, honestly. I mean, uh, I, it's not about me. It never has been. Uh, but I'll write uh, about autobiography of me. But let me tell you a little secret. Um, recently, I was contacted by someone who's in really good personal friends with one of the only men in Hollywood that could do this. And I signed all three books and a personal letter to that person who is an actor, producer, and a director. And to his film editor and some other people involved that have worked on his last 30 movies. Okay. So there's a possibility that there may be a methodical movie coming Oh, very nice. I'd like to see it. If there is, that'd be really nice. And, and let me say too, you know, like I can definitely understand you wanting to ride under another name and because, you know, you want to protect your family, you want to protect the people and not revealing the, the airline that you worked for. You want to protect the people that you used to work with. I mean, all that's totally understandable. Yeah. I, I, you know, most people email me and they stop following that Fetzer and the other people, because what it did is it backfired and it sold a ton of books. Yeah. Because they saw it as a personal attack and they feel exactly the way you do. Because if you wrote these books, I tried to give information for the third book to one of you guys that I did an interview with. And I, he had, it was a, a huge success what we did. And he, he's afraid that something might happen to him, his wife and kids and said, no, I don't want to know it. Send me the third book. I don't want to know any of this. I don't want to have it. Hmm. So he didn't want to put his life on the line by even having information. Because I, when I got into this third book, I put information out there in case something did happen to me. Because, uh, you know, I mean, it was a rising star rocket ship kind of thing to the top. And, and uh, I, I put out some information that this government plane does not want you to know. Yeah. Well, I can tell you that uh, in many ways, I thought that I had already heard all I needed to know about 9-11. That I'd, but when I heard you speak on uh, a show called Canary Cry Radio, when I heard that show, I was just like, 
wow, this is new stuff. I mean, this is a fresh new way of looking at what I thought by that time was kind of old hat, be honest with you. <laughs> well, you know, I've had probably five guys that interviewed me that said afterwards, I thought I knew everything about 9-11 and I knew nothing. I am humbled. Yeah. And uh, for me, guys, I was, because I had the inside view, I had different eyes. And because I could see things that, well, this couldn't have been a regular hijacking, Betty Ong wouldn't have said this. She wouldn't have said, I don't know, we might be being hijacked. She would have said, we are hijacking. Right. That's protocol. And so when I started to kind of go through all that stuff, my eyes were very different. And I, like I said earlier, I kept saying, well, why, why didn't other people see this? Because they didn't have flight attendant eyes. Right. And, and so I, I came in with a, in a total different view. And I'm sorry for those uh, loser 9-11 truther people that don't get it because they are too egotistical to get the inside track, to ask to see the FOIA. If I gave them this FOIA information, they would be blown away to see it because they couldn't make any sense out of it at all. Because yeah. quite frankly, I had a hard time with most of it. And there was a lot of it I learned from the air traffic controllers. I knew the city codes and I could read, uh, you know, the word documents. But, uh, boy, there was so much more than that. Like I said, that blogger that had the information about the E-4Bs and the other aircraft that were up around the Pentagon, that had been on the Internet for probably six or eight years. And wow. he's, unless he's read the books or heard an interview, and I've only done a, one other interview, uh, he has no idea what he has. I'm sure he's got a hard copy of that PDF somewhere. Well, Rebecca, thank you so much for being on. I mean, it's been it's been an awesome show. I mean, I think I could really talk and pick your brain for hours. But real quick, where can people get the books and where can people contact you if they have any information they would like to share? I have four uh, websites. One is RebeccaRoth.com and it's spelled the biblical Rebecca, R-E-B-E-K-A-H-R-O-T-H.com. And uh, methodicalillusion.com, methodicaldeception.com, and methodicalconclusion.com. And each one of those has a button to push to go to an online store through Square for autographed books. And they're personalized and autographed. And I give you free bookmarks as well so you can share with those. And that's a great way to share the series with people you don't want to talk about 9-11 to. Just say, I just read this series. You should read it. And just hand them a bookmark. They're laminated. People won't throw them away. And... Uh, you can contact me at every one of those uh, websites also has an email uh, button. So you can just click on it and it'll find me. And so if you have something to share or you want to uh, talk about something. And I'm very uh, open to uh, sit and talk with you and do another show. <laughs> Absolutely. I would love that. I would love, it, each book comes out, we'll do a show, a book. I think that would be awesome. Yeah, it's really about waking people up. Time is short. Uh, pinch them, wake them, slap them, <laughs> get them to read the books um, so they are aware when it comes down next time. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Rebecca. Uh, we're going to close out this section, but stay on the line with us. Guys, we will be, we will be right back on Conspiracy Normal. And we're back again. And, <laughs> again, we just we just tried, and we just it was aborted. But anyway, <laughs> I think we're getting punch drunk right now, man. Yeah, it's been a long day. <laughs> yeah, it has. We've done we've done two interviews today. Although you'll just get the fun and frivolity that is conspiracy normal. <laughs> but uh, I really enjoyed that interview with her, man. I I enjoyed having her on and and, and talking about the 
things that we were talking about. I mean, it's, it's some fascinating stuff. I just kind of want to get your thoughts on it as well. Cause you were, you were kind of just like all soaking it in. Well, yeah, it's, it's a, just like last time she was on, we, um, she kind of reiterated it this time a little bit too about how, uh, her perspective on the whole thing is vastly different from most people that are out there, um, working to kind of uncover the truth on this. You know, as, as someone with 30 years of flight attendant experience and, you know, knowing the procedures and the protocols and all that, like I would have never, and most people would have never picked up on a lot of the little details that led her on her, her rabbit trail. Um, so it is, it's just fascinating stuff. And it was delved even deeper into a lot of things we talked about last time, this time, you know, a lot of new, yeah. a lot of new information. So, yeah, it, you know, one of the things that I, I just, I, I can't really get behind too much is the whole like hologram thing. That kind of like, I don't, I don't know about that. I right. mean, I, I think that, you know, you could be dealing with physical, if and, it was not the planes that were actually hijacked, then. And I get the feeling that she's just throwing out there as a sort of option because she does seem to lean more towards it was a remote operated. Yeah aircraft um yeah just that the technology for that was around I, i've always said that and, and i think you know as i've said on the show before that you could have had the planes hitting the buildings you could have had the plane hitting the pentagon and if you still even looked at the hijackers and some of the connections that were going on there you it, it becomes even just as murky as any of the things that she's that she's talking about that right it was I, I don't i don't need to believe that there were, uh, weren't actually plans to still fully believe that this was some sort of nefarious inside right job. right and one of the things i didn't ask her about was i wanted to kind of get into it. we were having some kind of technical difficulties but um one of the things that i wanted to get into with her a little bit was about benghazi because i just I finished the other day watching a uh, the movie 13 Hours about uh, Benghazi and about what happened there. Time to find out it was directed by Michael Bay, by the way, which uh, <laughs> I'm not crazy about Michael Bay. Kinda, but it was actually kind of subdued for like a Michael Bay movie. But, but, you know, there's a lot that we don't know about what happened there. Of what was actually was going on. A lot of the movie was focused on the the guys that were uh, CIA contract workers that were uh, basically, you know, hired guns really for the to protect the CIA bodyguards, uh, and it really focused on them. Uh, you know, a lot of focus has been on the actual storming of that consulate in Benghazi, and but most of the movie was about the attack on the CIA annex that was right next door. And I really felt like from watching that, that the CIA annex was really like the real target of what, uh, of the, whatever group it was that pulled it off, you know, Al Qaeda or whoever it was that actually did it. And there's been a lot of speculation that, and some of the stuff that's in the WikiLeaks uh, files that have, have come out. We talked about that on the last show. Uh, that guns were being moved from Benghazi into Syria because Syria civil war had just kind of started at that point and they were being moved from Libya into Benghazi. I, I really feel like something happened in Benghazi where somebody did not get paid and they pissed off the wrong people and those people attacked 
And it had more to do with that CIA annex that was on the, that was there right next to the consulate than it did with killing the, um, the ambassador. It certainly wasn't that BS story that what we were given in 2012, that it was all a, a protest over a video. You remember that? I don't. And to be honest, I don't know nearly enough about any of what went on over there as I should. Yeah. I wish I knew more than, than, than I do. And it's, it, it's always been, I've always thought that it's just something really weird and strange, like something, it was a, it was a bad deal that went South, some kind of arms deal they were making with somebody to smuggle those out into, in, into Syria. Um, but anyway, you know, all that's just maybe something we could look into later and maybe have a guest on about it that might know a little something about it. It'd be yeah. interesting to talk about. Uh, I did want to talk about a couple of things that have been in the news. Uh, we're recording this on the 21st. So by the time some people hear this, uh, it may be uh, some older news. But in Milwaukee, last what was it i think it was last week last weekend yeah it was last weekend when we were having the party or the day before milwaukee erupted into like some serious protests yeah uh and this was over a an armed guy black guy that apparently had was i don't know what was going on whether he was running from the cops or what it was but he had been shot by a policeman after he pulled a gun on them. Obviously, he had pulled a gun on them. And he, here's the funny part. The policeman that killed him was black. So go figure. And all of a sudden, there were all these riots that occurred. And there was a statement that was made by the sister of the individual that was shot. And CNN broadcast it on their station but we did not get the full story so i'd like to play that clip thy kingdom come thy will be of the man who was shot made an emotional statement to the police and CNN used a very short clip which made it look as if she was asking people to calm down. Family and friends holding a vigil marked by prayers. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. With his sister calling for peace. Don't bring the violence here and the ignorance here. And that's where CNN left off. But if you look at the longer version of what she said, it becomes clear that she's actually condoning violence so long as it's elsewhere. Burn it down, they gonna help nothing. Y'all burn it down, shit we need in our community. Take that to the suburbs. Burn that shit down. We need our shit. Y'all wanna hurt somebody, take that shit further out. Don't bring it here. Don't bring the violence here and the ignorance here. All right, so that was the edited clip where they said that she was calling for peace and calm. But when the actual real clip was that she talked about going out and instead of burning down that area, going a little further and burning down the suburbs. So it was more a call of violence against another group of people than it was a call against just for just general peace. 
But CNN decided that they were going to edit the hell out of it and to make it look like she was just calling for peace. So it really makes you wonder in some of these other situations whether we're actually getting the whole story or they're just trying to pull up some kind of narrative. And to me, that almost seems like it further inflames these type of situations. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I never heard the edited clip. This is the first I've heard any of it, but it's... I don't doubt that that kind of thing happens all the time either. You know, we know, I mean, we know they have an agenda. We know that they're trying to promote this, you know, this way of thinking or, or, or that, or, you know, push their ideals or, you know, push their, um, you know, their favorite candidate or their, you know, whatever it is that they're, that they're working on at the moment. And they're going to use everything in their power to do that. And, you know, pulling at people's heartstrings or, you know, turning this story just a little bit out of an angle, it's 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 going to help them do that. So I'm, I'm sure that they do. Yeah, and this happens in Milwaukee, too, where you have this police chief that uh, has basically said that, you know, well, he was a speaker at the Republican National Convention and said that we needed to uh, restore law and order into this country. And all of a sudden, there's a shooting in his town, and then there's these massive riots that end up destroying things in the black community there that they need. And uh, as it usually happens, people become frustrated. You, You know, a lot of people talk about why do they destroy their community? Well, part of it is just the general frustration of being there and being, you just, you, these people lash out at, at whatever is around them. I mean, it's just, it's just frustration. So part of that I can understand, but it, it, it becomes, instead of just saying that you want, you know, let's not destroy our homes. Let's destroy somebody else's home. I mean, that's a, that's just calling for racial war, basically. Yeah. Oh, no, absolutely. <laughs> and trying I mean, to make her look, and then CNN tries to make her look like she's Mother Teresa or something, you know? And not to condone what she said, but she's, you know, this is the sister of somebody who had just died. Like, no matter what the circumstances were, she's going to be in a right unpredictable emotional state. We shouldn't listen to what she's saying. Right. But Good point. There's a lot of anger involved there. Oh, absolutely. But, I mean, this kind of thing is inevitable when you've got all of this, you know, um, do cop lives matter? Do black lives matter? Do we have to choose a side? And all of this angst that's been going on, there's going to be all it takes is a situation like this, which is completely outside of the the scope of those arguments where you've got somebody who pulled a gun on somebody and on a cop and was shot and then tracked down and shot by you know another officer. Yeah, that's going to be way more explosive of a situation than it normally would have been. Right. You know, everyone's going to try to see these situations now, basically. Even if they're not there. Right. And of course, you know, you have the narrative, you have the narrative that is spun, um, about this, the white cop and the black person that is killed. And, you know, even though in many cases it's usually, it's been, you know, like the, uh, 
Philando Castile. I mean, he, the, the cop was not, he was not white. Apparently he was Asian. Um, but there's still that dichotomy there. And the truth is, is still the police brutality issue is still an issue that affects everybody. It just doesn't affect, it, it may affect black people more, but it affects other people too. It affects us all. And the militarization of police is also concerning as well. Right. Um, that's something that affects us all. And it's something that needs to be watched. And it's something that needs to be monitored. Um, but, you know, I, I think really, you know, that it is hugely irresponsible of CNN to have done that. And apparently I think that they have apologized for it. Uh, but, do they do it because it's a for a particular candidate or they're an apologist for, for them? I don't know. Do they do it possibly for ratings? More than likely. Yeah. Um, there's another th- uh, interesting thing that happened this last week. And that was about this picture that went all around the world of this child in Aleppo, Syria. Uh, if anyone has not seen this, it's a video of, well, first of all, Aleppo is under attack by Syrian government forces. You basically have a state of siege there. Uh, Aleppo is not occupied by ISIS, but it is occupied by other Islamic groups that we, the United States, are supporting over there. Uh, And government forces and also Russian forces have been bombing Aleppo repeatedly. And there was this footage of this little boy that is pulled from the rubble. He has dust all over him. Uh, He has blood on his face. And he's put in this chair in this ambulance. And he just kind of sits there with his arm off to one side and just sits there kind of calmly staring into space. Clearly, the kid's in shock. This went viral all over the internet, all over the news channels. CNN again, and come back up in in the conversation. They brought this out. Uh, the, the news anchor started crying, whether the tears were fake or not, I have no idea, but she starts, she starts to cry on, on air with this picture. Uh, there's more to this though. Uh, Luke, who isn't here, of course, (laughs) he's too busy. He's, he's too busy pokey hunting right now. He said it was popping off out there tonight and he couldn't be here, you know, to, to hang out with us because he was, he was pokey hunting. He's completely, he's completely lost in the matrix. But anyway, Luke had postulated that he thought that this was all about us welcoming migrants into the United States. And there could be something to that. But I think it's more of a way of bringing sympathy for our quote-unquote allies over there in Syria that are less than savory people. So let's play the other clip called Aleppo Boy. 
Uh, this is from the evil Russians from RT, which, of course, they're just a propaganda arm of the Russians anyway. But I thought there was a little bit of some good points in this. Some of it I agree with and some of it I don't. So let's play that clip. Um, I think it's uh, much worse than that. It's much more serious than that. This uh, image went viral, but if you notice, uh, newspapers and a lot of media outlets didn't actually run the whole video. Obviously, newspapers can't, only on their websites. But they took a still. If you actually watch the whole video, uh, I, I hate to say it, but it looks completely staged. Uh, you have this uh, moment where they're p taking this boy out of this dark corner, and there's 15 people standing around with expensive cameras filming it. Uh, not exactly a scene for first responders. And then they take the boy and they leave him on a seat and no one's attending to him. It, it does look as if it was staged for the cameras and used in, uh, in a very divisive way by the Western media uh, to maybe further uh, their agenda that they're trying to sell right now with regards to Aleppo. Mm, of course, there'll be no doubt an investigation into it to determine exactly if, if, if that was staged or real. But, uh, I mean, there's been a lot of media coverage both sides here uh, we've run through quite a lot one one of them Sky News for example they actually did an interview from Aleppo it was an interview with a, uh, a rebel leader uh, formerly affiliated with Al-Qaeda of course that's a, a terrorist organization recognized by uh, the West and Russia and the Syrian government uh, the photo there was published next to a, a well-known image um, of that boy um, do you think that could be perhaps be misconstrued as uh, you know by the by the the audience? Could that be perhaps linking two things which aren't linked? Look, this, this, this follows a long pattern which is really being ramped up right now. This is a media war. This is a public relations war. And they're trying, the Western media, uh, with the support of Western governments who have been backing the so-called rebels who are basically terrorists in East Aleppo right now, this, this group centered there. Um, they're pushing this narrative uh, that this is a, a rebel-held area and that these are no longer uh, al-Nusra. It's been rebranded, no longer affiliated. It's all terrorist held, the whole of East Aleppo. The Times ran a story today on the front page saying 300,000 people uh, in East Aleppo and so forth. They didn't even mention the 1.5 million people in West Aleppo in the government held area that have fled there for safety and protection. OK, there's people not being allowed to get to the west side because they're, they're being kept from leaving. There's uh, people being targeted. There, there's 300,000 people, many of which are terrorists and their families and holdouts, people wanting to hold on to their properties or businesses. And then there's people who aren't being allowed to leave, uh, being used as human shields. So the way this is being spun in the Western media is breathtaking. Uh, and it's a very concerted effort across all mainstream media outlets, uh, mainly in the United States and Britain. I can speak for the English language media but not maybe for some other countries. But this is exactly what I've seen. Uh, and this has been going on for quite some time now. Okay. So what I would not agree with necessarily is that this was a staged event um, because we are dealing with a city that is in the middle of a war zone and is being bombed by, like I said, the Syrian army. Assad's forces and by the Russians as well from the air. Uh, so with that happening all the time, of course, you're going to have people being pulled alive or dead or wounded out of the rubble. It's going to happen. Uh, so I don't necessarily think that it was 
staged, so to speak. Uh, but it definitely is being used for propaganda purposes. It's definitely being used for us to feel through this little boy, who I do feel for, by the way. I think it's terrible that children are, anytime children are involved in war, I think it's awful. Um, but it is being used as a propaganda tool by these opposition forces. Now, these are distinct from ISIS, who are our enemy, used to be our friend, but are now our enemy, right? Uh, something tells me that that's going to happen with these guys, too, that they're going to be our enemies next. So, who are these people? Uh, you have Fatah Halab and another group called the Army of Conquest. That sounds pleasant. Yeah. Uh, the Turkestan Islamic Party in Syria, Jais al Sunnah, Ajnad al Sham, Ansar al Islam. I'm sure I could ask Dr. Furnish what all this means. But the main one is the Al Nusra Front. If anyone has heard about the Al Nusra Front, these guys are an offshoot of Al Qaeda. Okay, so they are supposed to be our big enemy, but they also, for some odd reason, they don't like ISIS. So these are the people that we're supporting over there. They're just as Islamic extremists as ISIS, but they're the good guys because they're not ISIS and they don't like them. And these are also the guys that a few weeks ago beheaded a 12-year-old in Aleppo. And where's all the sympathy for the 12-year-old that was beheaded? He's a child, too. So there's more to this. And a guy on my Facebook, his name was Rob Gray. I'll give him credit where credit is due. Um, He's a Trump supporter, but I won't hold it against him. (laughs) He said that he actually did some photograph, looked at some photos. And one of the guys in the picture, the same picture with right before they beheaded the 12 year old boy, one of the guys in the picture is the same is also another guy that's taking pictures of the little boy being put into the truck. Hmm. It's the same guy. You can look at the pictures. I'll show you, but it's crazy. So these, so it's, so this is what's happening is we're trying to get this. I think we're trying not as much as it's a refugee thing, although that could still be part of it. Bring the refugees over here, feel bad for this kid and bring them over here. The refugees are coming no matter what it's going to happen. This is what we do, right? We we feel sorry. We we go over there and help mess their country up, and then bring them all over here and feel bad about it. Uh, that's happened many many times. I won't even even go into it in, in history. But they, what is going to happen is that we need to feel we need to feel the sympathy for our allies over there. That's the propaganda that's going on right now. So there's a lot more to it than just this sad picture of this little boy, which I know people are upset about. I know it's hard to see, and it should be. But let's not forget all the other kids that have been killed over there, 
Right. Or in every other war that has right. taken place that we've been involved in. Right. So this is just something to pull at the heartstrings to make us support Al Nusra, who probably, you know, once they get rid of ISIS, will fill the void that ISIS was in and they will be our new enemy. And we will forget about little Omron in his little chair when, you know, because in probably 10 years from now, he'll probably be one of the warriors of God over there. That's how messed up this situation is because we just keep coming in and making this stuff happen and messing up the country. And you breed more and more of these jihadists basically so we're just as much to blame on it as well Alyssa, you came in do you have any thoughts i just i i agree with everything that you're saying and i totally as an empathic person at heart like i totally agree with everything that you're saying and i feel like i feel so greatly for everybody all the time I really do, but I feel like it happens so often and we're so bombarded with it that even without desensitizing tactics from the media, we are desensitized to it because we're just used to it. And when I saw that little boy as a mother who gave birth to children, I saw that little boy and yes, he was in shock. And it was, it was sad and it was, it was really, really bad. Um, but the worst part to me is when he touched his head and looked at it and then just kind of wiped it on the chair. Like this is, this is normal. This is like my kids when they'd smear syrup in their hair, you know, like that, that hurt. Like that was hard. And it's, and I know that happens all the time, every day, everywhere. And it doesn't make it any less sad, but to actually see it, like, you know, it had more to do with that boy and every boy like him, you know, as an on empathic a per, on person. On a personal level. Right. Like, a personal I, level. But at the same time, I have my own family. I can't dwell on those things and I can't save them all. But it was just a, a blatant reminder of just how desensitized, you know, like, yes, I think about it every day. Yes, it makes me sad. Yes, I'm sorry for this country that gets bombed and this, you know, but it was like that blatant image you know, just brought it all flooding, you know, it was just like, oh, just him, so sick of it. You bring up a good point because for him, it is normal because if we look at the fact that this child is five years old, Syrian civil war has been going on now for five years. That's all he's known his entire life. That's it. And that's the kind of stuff that really is, really is scary because if you think about a child that is in, let's say, 2003 in Iraq. They're five years old. They would be 18 now. Right. And they, at this point, this hypothetical child that was five years old when we invaded Iraq in 2003 could now be, be one of those ISIS fighters. Right. And that's frightening. And this is the kind of stuff that is being bred in Syria in and of itself has been such it is a black hole sucking everybody in and even the chinese are talking about getting getting involved there russia is already involved there 
I mean, the United States is there. Britain is there. France is there. At least in some everything capacity, is come everybody to a head. is there. Everything is. I mean, we can't. We cannot keep going at the pace that we've been going and in this in the direction that we've all been going everybody our country not not you and me personally but our country as a whole other countries as their whole like we can't it's it's not going to work and eventually it's going to come to this boiling point which i think we're already there you know and to me i i understand how the media would use that boy and that video to pull at the heartstrings, quote unquote, of people. But it pulls at my heartstrings every day, and I hope that no, it does I mean, everybody I else. I couldn't help. But I actually, I and actually that boy, was watching for, in something. That, in that moment, I felt for that boy himself. You know, and I, like I said, you know, I have kids. I know, like at that age, to him to just wipe it off, wipe it off his head. And then be like, ah, and rub it on the chair. And remember, too. And just sit there and kind of swing his legs like his whole family just got killed. Remember, too, that's what good propaganda does. Right. And maybe he was in shock, but usually in shock, they don't move. You know, that was, you know, and that that broke my heart. I don't know. I just. uh, Let's end this on a happy note. Well, maybe not for Rob. (laughs) Uh Uh-oh. But, uh. Mysterious, cre- mysterious, creepy clown spotted in Green Bay. <laughs> yes. Green Bay, Wisconsin. A mysterious clown that seemingly came out of someone's nightmares has been spotted in Green Bay, according to photos going around social media. A Facebook page called Gags the Green Bay Clown claims the first <laughs> sighting happened August 1st at 2 a.m. The clown looks more Pennywise than Ronald McDonald. His outfit appears shabby and he's carrying black balloons. One Facebook tipster says it's the work of a director who's making a short horror film. If you have photos, we'd love to see them. Submit submit them through and you know please send photos he's, he's carrying like he's carrying like black balloons i know and you like, sent the photos just, to me i remember <laughs> i love it anybody's new to the show they know that uh rob has a pathological fear of clowns yeah. <laughs> i love it it gives me life <laughs> uh someone actually said also too that gags is uh uh, apparently there was another actor, an actor that said he was recruited to be, to do this kind of stuff. It was a like, promo stunt, right? Yeah. It's like a promo stunt for like a, for some movie. He said he didn't take the job, but somebody else did. I still I'll think it's awesome. I'll be worried doing this, man. If you're out there in a clown suit with like balloons yes. and you look evil as hell, I'd be worried I'd get shot. Right. Exactly. I was like, somebody like, I'd probably, would, like, I'd probably would, like, walk just, up like, to you and like, sniper fire and kill me. No, you know? I'd walk up and be like, can I have a balloon or what? <laughs> I mean, cause you know, that person knows that they're creepy. That was their intention. Yeah. So if you walk up to them and disregard that completely, they'd probably be like, whoa, this person's oh, weird. Man. Well, thank you guys. I appreciate it. Uh, it's fun. been a marathon day. Um, and, uh, next time on the show, uh, we'll be, it will be two weeks from when we're recording this, but you guys will hear it in about a week. Uh, we're going to be talking to Robert Guffey again about his, uh, book, Crypto Scatology. And, uh, I want to cover like every conspiracy theory ever known to man on that show. So <laughs> hopefully it'll be, uh, it should yeah. be a good one. 
So. We'll set you a cot up here in yep. the studio. You can just <laughs> I wanna, live here I for days. Thank, I want to thank Luke for being here and yeah. uh, being intense. Good job, Luke. <laughs> you get an A plus. One out of four ain't bad, man. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> <clears throat> I do want to say, though, real quick, um, we're going to post links to all of Rebecca's books on the website. Um, yes. Come check it out. It'll take you straight to Amazon. Um, got some more fun stuff we're going to throw up there, and it's just conspiranormal.com. Um, yeah. Come check us out. I have noticed that we've gotten some people listening to us on the on the website too. So yeah, we increase that traffic and uh, make make a plug. We'll make a plug for our boy Jeff on the Leisure Hour. Uh, that's uh, I think that was a, that was a good show. Gotten a lot of downloads on it. Yeah, that was and, a lot of fun. Um, the really great guys. Check them out. You can get the website on that. Oh, it's uh, ourleisure.com. It's h o u r leisure.com. Um, you can find all the episodes and yeah, the fun information there. Discussions about clowns. Oh, yeah. Eating dinner at the <laughs> cafeteria. <laughs> All right, guys. Well, we're closing out. Uh, I want to thank everybody. Uh, thank Rebecca Roth. And uh, thank you, Alyssa, for being here with us. Well, you are and, welcome. And uh, I don't have anything from Luke. So we're going to play something that uh, the party from the party that we had a few weeks ago. Yeah. We played the rendition of Commando by yes. the Ramones. So. Thank you, everybody, for listening, and we will be back next time on Conspiracy. Yeah.
Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park 